Hello and welcome to the Independent Research Forum's Research and Markets podcast with me, JP Smith. There are really four reasons behind the moderated expectations of future monetary tightening and the subsequent rally in risk assets. First of all, some of the main drivers of core inflation have begun to show tentative signs of weakness, in particular the labour and housing markets, where the weakness actually is is more than tentative in a lot of countries. But of course, labour is always a lagging indicator. Anyway, more about that later, because that's an area where there's significant differences of opinion at the moment. Secondly, investor sentiment and positioning indicators had reached extreme levels of negativity. And of course, that's usually a very good contrarian indicator. There has been significant wealth destruction. The crypto route alone has accounted for roughly $2.3 trillion of wealth destruction from the highs earlier in the year, following the demise of San Bankman-Fried's FTX. Now, I'm the generation that generally doesn't really get crypto, but for many millennials, this has been a far from trivial event. And obviously, that will have an impact on liquidity in the real economy. Third, gas prices in Europe have declined by over 50% from the late August highs, due in the main to the very mild weather across the continent and the very, or actually very high levels of storage. Now, this is something that I watch very, very closely. And actually, it's a little bit troubling that over the last week and a half, without anybody really noticing the front end of the curve has gone up by roughly 45%. It's up again this morning, the 29th of November. So this is something we need to watch, I think, fairly carefully. Finally, fourth and finally, economic growth in China continues to be extremely sluggish, and that's alleviating upwards pressure on commodity prices, most notably copper and other industrial metals, but also oil. And I'll come back to that later in this podcast. So the inversion, which has now moved on from the US in in bond yields across other major global bond markets, is now clearly telling us that recession over the medium term is likely. So I'd cite research from Paul Hodges of the PH Report, whose research I have indeed cited on this podcast before. And as you may recall, Paul uses the chemicals industry as the best lead indicator for global activity. In his most recent monthly He points out that margins for the world's major plastic polyethylene have continued to fall across all major regions. And again, to remind you, he follows Asia particularly closely. He suggests this is very unusual. Normally, demand would rebound as feedstock prices fall, enabling margins to increase back to previous levels. And he concludes that given the industry's role as the best leading indicator for the global economy, this suggests a major recession is actually underway at the moment, so major global recession. And bear in mind that recessions are never declared until long after they've begun. And indeed, on many occasions, they're only declared after they're actually over. So by the time the economics community gets on to revising its forecast formally, this should be pretty well priced in as far as you can price uh, a recession in without knowing the full magnitude of it. So the order of the global slowdown recession, I think, led by China and Europe are now spreading to the US. And as I said earlier, housing is a particular point of weakness in many countries. So the US, China, Sweden, and inevitably the UK come immediately to mind. But but, but there are many other countries as well, where the housing market is faltering and now starting to fall. And over time, I believe this will inevitably spread to the labour market 
and through to consumer spending. And this has obvious implications, which I'll come into later. So I can think of two IRF providers amongst a number who've been particularly outspoken about transitory inflation for the last 18 months. In other words, saying very clearly that the central banks have got this one wrong and inflation will be higher for longer. And those are James Aitken of Aitken Associates and Gerard Minnick from Minnick Advisors. And they both highlight the continued strength in the US labour market. Now, James recently gave a presentation for the IRF in mid-November, and he stressed something that I talked about myself in the last podcast, namely the incentive sets of central bankers, and particularly the sort of career risk, and also what he terms legacy risk. So the determination of Jerome Powell, head of the Federal Reserve, not to go down in history as another Arthur Burns by failing to take the necessary steps to bring about lower inflation on a sustainable basis. And it seems perhaps in common with some consultants and investment managers as well, with all due respect, that central banks use the rear view mirror as their key forecasting tool. And this is something that both James Gerard and a number of our other providers are concerned will keep interest rates higher for longer than is necessary and will bring about a sharp global recession. James in particular believes that the Fed is very far from pausing. And again, I'd recommend the event that he recorded for the IRF in November. And he thinks that the terminal Fed's fund rate will be closer to 6% than 5%. Meanwhile, Gerard has slightly amended his view and now predicts that the labour market will begin to notably soften through the March quarter, with the US likely to enter recession in the June 2023 quarter. And bear in mind, both James and Gerard have both been pretty much spot on when it's come to their calls. So, Over the short term, there is clearly some relief. Inflation has rolled over, if only because of year-on-year comparisons, some alleviation of supply chain concerns, and weakness in commodity prices, which I'll come on to later, because I think China is clearly the main driver of that. So over the last couple of weeks, uh, in fact, the last month, we've seen bond yields come down. It hasn't unwound by any means all of the uptick that we saw earlier in the year, but it is at least quite an encouraging sign. And and I think everybody accepts now that inflation is rolling over over the short term and that there is likely to be a period of economic weakness. But the real debate now amongst economists centres on what happens after that. So if we look at sort of secular inflation rate, there are a number of advocates of higher secular inflation amongst the IRF providers. One of them who I did a IRF event on the 18th of October with is Manoj Pradham from Talking Heads Macro. And he, along with his colleague, David Goodhart, is probably the most prominent and earliest advocate of demographic shifts boosting inflation. And again, I would encourage people to listen to that conversation. It's titled, Will Labour Markets Break the World? And that's a belief now that is relatively commonplace amongst economists Uh, And it's tied in with ideas like the great retirement, um, whether that's sort of temporary or whether it's permanent, and the extent to which the ageing cohort of boomers will spend the cash that they've accumulated over the past sort of three or four decades. I also did a podcast with Peter Warburton 
of economic perspectives in late November. And this was on the UK in a global context. And, and Peter really focuses on politically economy related factors as well as credit. So he argues that the Bank of England and by implication other central banks will not command the broader political and social support necessary to bring inflation back down to the levels prevailing between the great financial crisis and the onset of the COVID pandemic. So this is quite a provocative argument. Peter sees inflation as a relatively benign, what he terms covert instrument of redistribution. I think Lenin said something very similar about inflation. And this redistribution towards the younger demographic and low income cohorts who've lost out so much over the past, well, over the period of of globalisation, certainly in developed economies, obviously not in emerging markets because global inequality has actually been declining. But within developed countries, the Gini coefficient, particularly in places like the US and UK, has been rising. And Peter sees this as a way that the balance will be redressed, leading to a benign rebalancing over the medium term. But of course, it does raise issues for people that hold wealth and want to preserve that wealth in real terms. Another view on inflation that takes into account both China and US factors comes from Andrew Hunt, founder of the eponymous Andrew Hunt Economics, in a recent report, 23rd of November, entitled The Inflation Roller Coaster. And he's really focusing on the supply side and constraints on the supply side. So policymakers' long held belief that supply curves are elastic has been undone by the pandemic, climate change, geopolitics, and a host of other factors which he outlines in the report. And he states that this represents a massive change within the global investment environment, and one he believes investors are too slow coming to terms with. Aggregate supply curves, according to Andrew, may now be near vertical, which he thinks is a recipe for stagflation over the medium term. And also suggests the world will switch from one of cooperation and collusion to one of competition. He's uh, actually very bearish on China and even more so on Hong Kong, where he believes the US dollar peg is unsustainable. And that, I think, is quite an interesting subject, which I'm going to save for a future podcast because it's quite complex, but it's one that's definitely moving on to the radar screen. And as he explains in a conversation with myself on the 26th of October in the IRF podcast series, a talk entitled China, the biggest short, he thinks that the primary cause of the recession there will be a traditional emerging market banking crisis. However, I think unlike myself, he believes that the deflationary impact on the US bond market will be more than cancelled out by a surge in the supply of US bonds and a more accommodative monetary policy by the Fed and other major global central banks and outside the US by renewed strength in the dollar. So this really comes back to political economy and the sort of things Peter was talking about as well. To what extent will central banks be able to fight inflation or will they be forced eventually to monetize fiscal deficits and essentially accommodate higher rates of inflation than the sort of 2%, which is the ostensible target. And if you ask me what markets now are discounting, in rough terms, I would say inflation over the medium term of somewhere between 3 and 4%. So I think that's the key issue, whether or not you believe that we're likely to be there or not. Now, talking of China, issues around the trade-off between China and other factors 
is in my opinion, the key thing investors should really be focusing on an international asset allocators. So as a former emerging market strategist myself, I think that investors are as slow in coming to terms with the demise of China's capital intensive growth model as they were to appreciate the acceleration phase, which ran from 2001 to 2010. This took around six years to be fully priced in. It was priced into commodities and emerging market equities, which were both massive outperformers over that period of time. Now, no one disputes that China's sustainable rate of economic growth is lower than would have been anticipated even at the start of last year. But the debate is over the extent of that growth slowdown. And this is a critical issue for inflation via commodity and manufactured goods prices. So those relatively bullish commentators believe that a combination of monetary easing by the PBOC together with the potential relaxation of the COVID restrictions, should prolong the rally in Chinese financial assets, which has been happening over the past month, and help to reliquify the economy. This view is especially prevalent among some hedge fund managers, and it's an integral part of the long commodity trade, which I believe is almost consensus amongst the buy side. However, there is a differentiation between industrial metals and energy, which I'll come on to in a minute. Let's deal, first of all, with the much revaunted reopening trade. It's pretty clear that COVID zero, as adopted by the Chinese, is not all about disease prevention, but serves a dual purpose of social control at a time when the Chinese economy is coming under increased cyclical and structural pressure. Tenio say that they believe that the wave of protest could cause the leadership to decide that the exit needs to proceed more quickly than previously planned. So there's an element of accommodation there. There's repression, yes, and we can see the repression when we switch on the news and we see the police and we see the treatment of demonstrators, which is hardly a novelty in China. But behind the scenes, there are measures to relax the restrictions. So look, this isn't going to be resolved in a hurry. It may look as though it's going one way or the other, but of course, there are a lot of moving parts. And the biggest one is the impact that COVID itself will have on what is quite a vulnerable population in China, particularly an elderly vulnerable population. There's also, of course, as I said, this business about repression and COVID zero actually serving social and political purposes. So a couple of weeks ago, it was my pleasure to moderate a podcast with Anne Stevenson Yang, the co-founder of J Capital, entitled Joining Up the Dots in China. Now, Anne, I've known for a while. She's had 25 years or so of hands-on experience in China. She lived there. She now can't get her visa renewed, unfortunately, but she has an extensive network of contacts and data there. She certainly believes that the COVID restrictions serve a social and political purpose. And that if you look, for example, at the areas in China with the biggest proportion of minorities, a lot of them have relatively low case counts, but have some of the harshest COVID restrictions there. So that's one indication of this purpose that they really serve. And of course, as the economy deteriorates, as the property market gets into trouble, the sort of demonstrations that we've just seen against zero COVID, this is a way of perhaps trying to contain protests about what's happening in the economy as well. Now, as far as the overall economy is concerned in China on a structural basis, Anne's view can be summarised by a page in her most recent presentation entitled 
the economy is down and it's not coming back. So she's analyzed the economy from a macro perspective, but she also takes a more bottom-up view as well, using company data, specific company metrics, and some very detailed analysis of both companies and industry. And like me, Jay Capital believed that the structural problems facing China's economy means there's little prospect of a sustainable recovery in GDP growth. And I'd just like to cite a recent report of hers, an in-depth report entitled Never mind real estate, LGFVs, that's local government financing vehicles, are the big problem. And in that report, she outlines the extent of the deterioration in local government finances with a long list of tangible, almost real-time examples of local authorities around China who've had to curb critical services at this time. And, And she actually, on the podcast, made a comparison with my own experiences going around Russia in the late 1990s, where the social safety net completely fell apart. So I think that is something to look at very carefully. Now, on to liquidity, because liquidity indicators are obviously a key and they help to link the economic outlook with what's actually happening in the financial markets. And of course, one of the perhaps the um, preeminent liquidity analysis comes from Michael Howell's cross-border capital. Michael says that the PBOC has clearly been easing, and, and we can see that in his data, in his work, in his most recent reports. However, my own thoughts on that are if we look at the structural work of people like J Capital and Emerging Advisors, which is Jonathan Anderson's firm, and I'll come on to John's views in a minute, but he's, I would say, equally pessimistic as Anne about this. It seems that the authorities in Beijing are largely going to throw good money after bad. So in other words, this liquidity is going to be used to prop up ailing parts of the economy, namely the property market, local government, industries associated with local government, banks that need recapitalizing, and the incremental capital output ratio, the so-called I-core ratio, and Anne points out it's dropped by two-thirds over the past 10 years, will therefore continue to decline, indicating ever lower rates of productivity and therefore sustainable economic growth. Now, Could some of this liquidity creation find its way into local financial markets? It could. And John Anderson is certainly watching that very carefully, as is uh, Michael Howell at Cross Border Capital. But overall, it looks as though a lot of this money will, in effect, just not show up on the radar screen because, as I say, it's used to prop up parts of the economy where you probably need to have some creative destruction, which the authorities are only going to allow to a limited extent. So let's move on to markets. About time, you might might say. To state the obvious, markets are going to continue to be volatile, given the relatively high, albeit falling, inflation. Investors will have to work hard to preserve wealth in real terms. And I think the recent rally illustrates one of my main themes, namely that in order to preserve wealth, in order to make money, you have to abandon a relative return mindset, adopt an absolute return mindset and be contrarian. And in fact, i believe if you do have a real return benchmark, you really only need to invest on extremes, and particularly extreme movements down or or sell when you get extreme movements in the opposite direction. And a few recent examples, I mean, an asset class as big as US bonds 
I mean, we saw an enormous sell-off in those to positions that were starting to look very oversold, as we did in sterling and UK gilts as well on the back of the catastrophic trust and crowding budget. And everybody was bearish on the UK. You had forced technical selling by the pension funds because of the LDI debacle. And since then, sterling has been, I believe, the best performing major currency in the world. But you could extend that argument to the DAX index in Germany and even on the extreme to Turkish currency and equities, which have been just about the best performer globally this year, which is something I think very few of us could have predicted at the start of this year. Now, as always, investors are positioned incorrectly for the new environment. Back in the day after the great financial crisis, the trade, the winning trade, was just to buy US index funds and hold them. However, investors weren't doing that. Investors wanted alternative assets. They wanted real returns. They wanted absolute returns. They didn't want to buy beta. And it was exactly the time when they should have been buying beta in early 2009 and late 2008. And that was, of course, because they were so traumatized by the losses they suffered during the great financial crisis. And now, of course, perversely, we're in the opposite situation. At precisely this time when people should be looking for absolute return, they're still piling into index funds and particularly into the US. So Bloomberg cite data from EPFR indicating that the movement from active to passive funds isn't just happening in the US, but globally. So cumulative global fund flows for the year to mid-October show that passive equity and bond funds attracted $379 billion and $178 billion respectively, while active equity and bond funds lost $215 billion and $442 billion, respectively. So I've talked a little bit about wealth destruction in crypto. There also a lot, there's a lot of concern out there about private equity. And of course, that's really, to an extent, a, a black box. We know there's a lot of leverage out there. On the 28th of November, the FT published an excellent article about a product known as collateralized fund obligation, which is connected with, uh, and, and they say effectively, a private equity variant of collateralized debt obligations, which obviously makes one's blood run cold, remembering what role they played during the great financial crisis. And the author of the article believes that they introduce a new layer of leverage into a private capital industry already built, as I said, on leverage and debt. So this is also something, and the crypto factor is also something which could help on the margin to influence the Fed. And there is a point at which if they break something very significant, then, you know, more aggressive easing or less aggressive tightening rather will start to be priced in. And cross-border capital, Michael Howell's firm, which I mentioned earlier, um, on the 21st of November produced a report seeing tentative signs of a nascent de facto shift in Fed policy. And this is quite significant. So I'm going to dwell on it a little bit. So the report's entitled, Has the US Fed Already Paused and Started to Pivot? And digging deeper into Fed operations shows that the effective quantitative tightening program has stalled so far in Q4, even reversing to the tune of $167 billion of QE. So I'm not going to actually, I'm not going to say any more about that report, because I think 
people should get in touch with the IRF and then get in touch with Michael because, as I say, I think his reports really are the exemplar of this liquidity analysis, which tends to lead big movements in markets. So unlike investors, amongst our providers, the US is now almost universally out of favour. According to the Financial Times, analysts expect earnings across the S&P member companies to grow by almost 6% next year, and they cite FactSet data for that, despite the recession threat, which most of our providers now are actually starting to discuss and talk about. So again, Paul Hodges warns the and stresses the 18-month lead and lag for monetary policy to take effect and, uh, like me, believes that investors are far too complacent when it comes to corporate earnings. And that's a view which is shared by a number of our providers. Gerard Minnick at Minnick Advisors, literally this morning, uh, 29th of November, produced a report expressing quite a lot of concern now about the outlook for US earnings. And as I said, we don't really have many people who are particularly positive on the US at this point in time, other than playing the sort of periodic rallies in the markets. So as far as Europe and European markets are concerned, they're really overshadowed still by the conflict between Russia and the Ukraine. And on many occasions, I've cited David Roach at Independent Strategy and and his work on that. So this is something in the European markets that David and Independent Strategy follow very, very closely. So again, I'd encourage you to reach out to the IRF and see about obtaining a trial to David's Independent Strategy product. But I just want to talk a little bit myself about this war conflict, which in many ways is the elephant, or perhaps that should be the big bear in the room. And it's become increasingly clear since I highlighted in October that a potential Ukrainian attempt to retake the Crimea will be the crux point for the conflict. So, a few things. First of all, obviously, the Ukrainians having taken Kherson have got much closer now to the gateway to the Crimea. There are a number of cities, large towns that are in the way. And obviously, the sort of Dnieper River as well. But there seems to be some progress taking place there, albeit amidst a blackout. And I think the key thing is when the ground starts to harden in the winter. And obviously, that will enable Ukrainian forces to start to be more mobile again. So the Russians, for their part, of course, have got this sort of new conscript mobilization army, which which they're sort of training up at the moment. But it's pretty clear from both anecdotal and more tangible evidence that their equipment is, is simply not adequate. It's inadequate for the winter. It's inadequate for the task in hand. So the Russians will focus, obviously, on defense and on containing and, and on the artillery and trying to knock out sort of power and water and other utilities for the Ukrainian forces. But I still think there's going to be a crunch point when the Ukrainians get closer to the Crimea, where effectively some of their allies, the US and some of the European countries, possibly attempt to put pressure on Zelensky, maybe to start negotiating seriously if the Russians are willing to do that. Because for the Russians, the Crimea, and not just for the Russian authorities, but for the Russian population, Crimea is something of a red line. And of course, Zelensky has his own internal constituency as well. So I think this is going to be quite a difficult situation. 
So I'd like to cite the work of uh, one of our specialist providers, that's Anton Tabak at Aleph Advisory, who, who does outline a potentially more positive scenario where President Erdogan in Turkey acts, if you like, as an honest broker, if you, if you can believe that, between Russia and the Ukraine, and that there's some sort of de facto ceasefire involving big prisoner of war swaps, potentially, and some negotiation before the Ukrainians embark on a serious assault on the Crimea. So the question is when this could possibly take place. I think the consensus is that it's unlikely to happen before the summer, but events move very, very quickly. And it's just conceivable that if there is a renewed war of mobility, then, as I say, the pressure on Zelensky and the Ukrainians starts to uh, starts to increase. The, the other important thing to follow is, is what happens to Putin, because Putin, despite what some hedge fund managers who regularly podcast appear to believe, I mean, Putin's whole strategy has been a strategic disaster. I mean, there's a long list of things he's done, which for the medium and long term of Russia are absolutely catastrophic. Just to mention a few, German rearmament, he's almost destroyed the gas industry in terms of supplies to Europe. He's driven Finland and Sweden to the brink of joining NATO. And he's almost created a sense of Ukrainian nationhood, which existed before, but in nothing like as strong a form as it did now. And the latest development, and one that's going to be acutely sensitive for a lot of the Russian elite, is the threat that other ex-Soviet states, especially those in Central Europe, and I'm thinking here of the Turkic republics, but also primarily of Kazakhstan, are moving closer to China and away from Russia. And strategically for Russia, this is catastrophic. And by the way, I didn't mention the demographic crisis as well in Russia, which has got worse. So there is, I think now, quite a strong possibility that Putin will be removed. And I'm I'm minded, though, of the words of Winston Churchill when talking about Russian politics during the Second World War. And he said, Kremlin political intrigues are comparable to a bulldog fight under a rug. An outsider only hears the growling. And when he sees the bones fly out from beneath, it is obvious who won. And I would certainly recommend Mark Galliotti's podcast in Moscow Shadow for any of you who want to learn more about what's happening in depth between Russia and Ukraine. So talking about Russia and the Ukraine leads naturally to the outlook for emerging markets. Emerging markets seem to be a renewed focus and they're they're very split views amongst our providers. Bear in mind that the MSCI EMF equity index has underperformed the S&P every single year since 2010. When I might remind people that in a previous life, I myself published a long report predicting exactly that scenario. And that was a report that went down very badly with both colleagues and clients. So that's an indication sometimes that it is quite difficult to be a contrarian. Anyhow, times have changed and the S&P is clearly no longer such an attractive proposition. So where where does that leave EM? So for a very articulate exposition of the long-term bull case, I would recommend Whitney Baker from Totem Macro being interviewed on the Meb Faber podcast, that's F-A-B-E-R, dated the 7th of November. So Whitney sees emerging markets as much less exposed to the global economic headwinds than their developed peers over the medium term. And again, this is a view, I think, that's quite prevalent amongst a lot of 
very smart hedge fund managers. Whitney, I believe, is, is ex-Bridgewater. So, you know, there's some very smart people at the moment who believe very much in that EM trade over the medium and long term. For a rather different emphasis, I'd recommend Jonathan Anderson's conversation with myself on the 16th of November, which is available on the IRF website. So John is a very experienced EM and global economist, having held senior positions at the IMF, Goldman Sachs and UBS before founding Emerging Advisors Group. And this interview is a real tour de force as he navigates his way around most of the asset class in just under an hour, taking in macro and market analysis and views and being very patient with my constant interruptions and questions, even though it's almost midnight at his home in Shanghai. Short term, John is fairly agnostic, given the strong positive correlation of EM equities with dollar weakness. But taking a more structural view, he remains relatively cautious about the absolute and relative return prospects for emerging market equities, as defined by the most widely followed indices, in particular the MSCI. He's especially negative on China, and that's an economy and market he's followed for well over 20 years, and one which he believes should be defined as a frontier market. Now, that's um, not a view which is going to win in many friends in Shanghai, I would guess. Although this doesn't preclude opportunistic trades when local investors are starting to buy, and, and local Chinese markets are very much like that. If you're going to buy, you really have to trade on the back of what the locals are likely to do because the valuations don't really come into it. MSCI China is a little bit different to that. Anyhow, his favoured equity markets at present include India, Brazil and Vietnam. So the latter having been the worst performing market in the world before a sharp rally took place just after Emerging Advisors published a report with a strong buy recommendation and that came out in mid-November. Both Whitney and John have a relatively positive outlook for EM dollar denominated debt and that's a very different investable universe by country compared with the main equity indices. However, Jonathan points out that there is almost no sign of structural reform throughout most of the emerging market universe, debt universe, including those countries which are beneficiaries of IMF programs. And that's very different to the situation in the late 1990s and early 2000s, when we did see significant reform taking place that paved the way for a long bull market in emerging markets. So I have to say my own position is that I agree with Whitney on EM debt and John on EM equity. In 2017, I advised my own extract clients to zero weight both Russia and China in view of the abject corporate and sovereign governance. And that's a position aligned with that of James Aitken, who suggests that clients should ask above everything else, how do I expose my net exposure to China to zero? So finally, moving on to commodities. And again, a podcast I can't recommend highly enough is with Mark Latham at Commodity Intelligence. And that was hosted by the IRF's Oscar Parker in mid-November. Now, Mark uses a combination of AI, artificial intelligence, and he looks particularly at the sort of stories thousands of stories that are coming out on commodities, conventional analysis, and also 30 plus years of experience as both a strategist, but also investment manager of commodities to forecast commodity prices. And he wins my prize for the quote of the month, and particularly when he's talking about industrial with regard to industrial metals. And Mark says, we're in a bear market, but the eyeballs are on bullish stories. And that rings so true with me. In almost all market environments, of course, narrative follows 
crisis. And he goes on to point out that bear markets invariably end in despair. He cites iron ore, copper and zinc as examples of metals where most market participants have structurally positive views. But like our other, some of our other providers, he believes that the China slowdown will be deeper and much more prolonged. And he thinks that's got a much bigger negative impact on these commodities than is currently priced in. He is, however, quite a bit more positive about oil and energy in general, not over the short term, but over the medium term, because China only accounts for around 13 to 14 percent of global oil consumption. So it's not such a big factor. And again, their constraints on oil supplies, particularly brought about by the influence of the ESG movement. And his uh, parting comment, of course, is that um, oil is much more significant for central banks. And in fact, central banks effectively are a hostage now to the energy market. And central banks are to all intents and purposes irrelevant for the purpose of analysis. So that's a podcast I think you should listen to well worth listening to. So I'm going to close there and focus on some forecasts for 2023 in the next Research and Markets podcast, which I'll record in December. Please do contact the IRF if you're an institutional investor and you're interested in having a trial for any of the research providers whose work I've cited today. Uh, you can also contact me on jp at independentresearchforum.com. And until the next time, goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.